we like to solve puzzles. That's just human nature. That's how the brain works. We like to fill in the gaps. And when you're listening to a story or reading a story, our brain is anticipating what's going to happen next. And that's engaging. And I think engagement is the magic of storytelling. We're, we're captivated. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to Connected Leadership Gold. I'm Andy Lapata. We're taking a break from the regular programming for August and we're going to share with you some of the jewels from the Connected Leadership Podcast archive. There have been so many great guests over the last two or three years that we want to make sure you don't miss out. So enjoy this jewel from the archive and I'll be back again on the 4th of September. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Today you're going to buckle up for a fast-paced ride around the English language uh, and visual communication and looking at how they can help us to engage with people much more effectively and build stronger relationships. Our guest today, Todd Churches, is an academic from New York who has written uh, an excellent book, which we talk about in the interview uh, and, I, and I mentioned again at the end, um, all about visual leadership, uh, a term that, that Todd has uh, coined, uh, as we'll find out uh, as we begin the podcast. Um, one thing that struck me about Todd's book is that visual leadership is about much more than having pictures on the PowerPoint slide. He talks about use of metaphor. He talks about storytelling. He talks about models. Uh, he talks about so much more, as, as you will find out. Uh, but I thought the best place to start was by asking just what visual leadership is and why it's so important. Sure. Well, visual leadership as a word is a word I coined. Uh, it's the combination of vision and leadership combined into one. And the concept behind it is that as a leader, um, how we lead is inseparable from how we see the world, right? Our view of the world shapes our belief systems, our core values, our behaviors, and everything else. So that's one component. So that's the leading into the leadership piece from a visual perspective. The other is we're always talking about leadership vision, right? What's your vision as a leader? What, you know, what makes one person a visionary leader or a leadership visionary like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk or Martin Luther King Jr., right? Uh, Winston Churchill. Um, trying to be global, trying to be universal with my uh, examples. Um, so it's about seeing the future, right? So vision is about seeing possibilities and envisioning a future that's different from and better than the current reality. So leaders have a vision of the future in their mind's eye. And mind's eye is a term that was popularized by Shakespeare in Hamlet when he saw the ghost of his father and said, didn't know if it was an apparition or, or uh, just a figment of his imagination. So it's about seeing something in our mind's eye, but how do we make that vision a reality? That's the foundation of what visual leadership is all about. So I want to pick up on something you said there, because you talked about visionary leaders and, and it being how we see the world. Now, obviously, this podcast's primary focus is on our, how our relationships impact our abilities to be effective leaders. So surely the relationships you have, the people you surround yourself with, are going to impact the vision that you have as well. Yeah. And we often surround ourselves with people who have a similar or shared vision, right? So when, in the course of doing that, on one hand, it meant, you say, all right, we're on the same page. We see the same thing. We're playing by the same playbook. The flip side of that, and especially now more than ever uh, in terms of its importance, is uh, 
um, diversity, right? Diversity, inclusion, belonging, uh, seeing things from other people's perspective. Uh, the cover of my book has a rainbow eye, and the rainbow represents two things. One, it represents diversity, because no one has this one rainbow eye, no one I've ever met anyway. Um, so it, it represents the colors of the world. Um, the other is uh, re represents innovation and creativity, right? How can we bring our color to the world um, and, and, and basically make the world a more beautiful place through the spirit of diversity? So the rainbow eye rep is a metaphor and a visual image that represents a variety of concepts related to what visual leadership is all about. So I, I talk a lot about um, cognitive diversity in networks and, and having uh, a range of different ideas uh, that, you know, and, and experience and expertise and perspective that can color your approach. And, and that really feeds into what you're saying. If you, if you recognize, I, I really like the idea of a visionary leader um, being what's in our mind's eye and what's in our vision uh, and, and sort of expanding that to how the people we surround ourselves with can influence that vision, then that cognitive diversity really comes in because you can innovate. You use the term innovation. You can innovate much more if you have different perspectives uh, coming in. Exactly. Like the, um, the concept of visual leadership I use the metaphor of seeing throughout. So it's what are we seeing? What are we looking at and looking for? What are we noticing? What are we not? What are we missing, right? Jack Welch, the legendary CEO of, of GE, always said a leader has to, needs the ability to see around corners, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah. what's, what's, what's not in our field of vision? We're going to talk about metaphor shortly. One of the classic ones is that of the iceberg, right? An iceberg, we, we only see the tip of the iceberg, right? The tip of the iceberg is probably one of the most common metaphors in the English language, right? Um, so that raises the question, what are we not seeing? What's beneath the surface? When you first meet someone, your first impression is just the tip of the iceberg. When you get the seed of an idea metaphor, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the potential of what lies beneath the surface, right? So we speak in metaphors all the time, and that metaphor of the iceberg is one of the most relevant and powerful to me because it's what we see versus the 90% that we don't. There's always more that we don't see and don't know than what we do. And, and you know, you've, you've mentioned metaphors. Um, your section in the book on metaphors really jumped out at me. I, I, I found it um, really fascinating, very enjoyable to read. You're, you're an English uh, literature major, and obviously that helped guide you in the way that you analyse this and recognise this. Um, but those metaphors are much more prevalent than, than I think people really recognise and, and imagine in our day-to-day -day conversation. Can you perhaps expand a little bit more on the power of metaphor, some of the most common ones that, that we come across? And, and most importantly, how can we use metaphors effectively to get a message across to the people that we lead, we want to inspire, we want to motivate? Sure. Well, one of the things I noticed in your excellent book, Connected Leadership, which I just finished and reviewed on Amazon, you open with the quote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. So right there, that classic poem from John Donne yeah. sets the stage using a metaphor, no man is an island, right? So we use metaphor all the time without even realizing it, right? We use well, you, just said set, you just said sets the stage as well. So. Exactly. <laughs> so, and that was totally unintentional. What's, exactly. fun, what's fun and interesting about metaphor, sometimes I'll, be doing, I'll do a workshop and I'll eavesdrop on different conversations and I'll jot down every metaphor I hear and then I'll feed them back to people and there are hundreds and they don't even realize they were doing it, right? So when people say, oh, I'm not good at metaphor, I'm not good at storytelling, I'm not good at drawing, all of these things related to visual leadership that we'll talk more about, 
we are good at these things. We're natural. Ch children do this, right? Children use metaphors, tell stories, and draw, right? So if children could do it, business people should be able to do it, right? So um, before getting into metaphor, I just want to mention that there are four different types of visual thinking I talk about. One is using visual imagery and pictures. The second is using mental models and frameworks. The third is using metaphor and analogy, which we'll talk about in a second. And the fourth is using storytelling and bonus points for humor. So if you can incorporate humor, you get you know, extra value. So those are the four categories. So just starting with the metaphor piece that you just asked about, one of the things about metaphors, basically what is a metaphor? It's using one thing to describe something else, right? That's maybe even unrelated to it. So um, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June, right? Famous metaphor from poetry. Um, what does a metaphor do? It makes abstract things concrete. It makes the intangible tangible, the unfamiliar familiar, the complex simple, and the invisible visible. So those are some of the things that metaphors do. So when we use language and say something is like something else, or um, he's a giant in his industry, right? Any of those phrases, those are metaphors that we use. And what they do is enhance the communication and create clarity and connection. One thing to keep in mind is that a good metaphor will create understanding while a not well-chosen metaphor will actually complicate things and make things more confusing. One example, I'm a big baseball, we were just talking about baseball and football slash soccer. Um, <laughs> I use a lot of baseball me metaphors because I'm a big baseball fan, but a lot of my students, I teach at NYU in Columbia, a lot of my students mainly at NYU are international students primarily from China. And a lot of them are, most of them are female. It's a human resources master's program. So if my audience is 80% females, 25, 28-year-old females from China, a baseball metaphor is not going to resonate with them. So I think what would something from dance or something from theater or, or best yet, something from nature, because nature is universal, right? Plant the seed for an idea, go out on a limb. Will that idea bear fruit? Let's get to the root of the problem. Those, will all, those are all universal metaphors that anyone of any culture will, uh, will, 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 will resonate with them. So, so, you know, you're obviously very conscious, very aware of metaphor. You've illustrated how we already use them uh, without really being cognizant of the fact. For someone who is less confident about creating, crafting their own communication, uh, what steps can they take to just stop, pause and be a bit more thoughtful about which metaphors they use and how they use them in, to, in order to engage with the right people and get their message across. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to think about is these are all learned skills, right? You're not born, some people may come more naturally or intuitive or they're used to it or it's ingrained in them for whatever reason. Uh, as you mentioned, I was an English literature major. So from years of reading um, novels, poems, short stories, plays, right? If that language becomes ingrained in you and just reading the newspaper, reading anything, you start to notice them. So I think that's the key thing. Once you're aware of metaphors, you'll be more um, consciously, they'll, they'll, they'll appear on your radar, metaphor, more often, right? Um, you'll notice them. And then once you do, you start, they, you, and when you're aware of your own use of metaphor, you can start to be consciously aware and be more strategic of saying, all right, is that the best metaphor for this situation? Real life example, I was saying to one of my students, um, 
you know, I said, I repeated myself a few times. I said, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. Now, millennial students who've never listened to a vinyl record album had no idea. Yeah. They thought a broken record was a good thing, like breaking a record in the Olympics, like winning a gold medal. So someone said, like, what does that actually mean? So a student actually raised their hand and said, what, what do you mean by a broken record? So for those of us who grew up with that needle stuck in the album, where it repeated that same part of the song until you, like, nudged it over, you know what it means to sound like a broken record. Someone who's never experienced a vinyl album doesn't know what that's in reference to. So that's just one example off the top of my head of, uh, actually I mentioned that in my book as well, um, of how using a metaphor that's common to you and understandable to you and you think you're bringing clarity to the situation, you're actually causing confusion. So I think that's the key thing. It's building awareness, it's reading more, noticing metaphors more, and then practicing. And then you talk all about relationships, right? You need to think about who is your listener? Who is your audience? Who are you trying to connect to? Like I, to use a baseball analogy with you may not resonate, but if I use soccer, football, sorry, or cricket or something, you know, that's, that's more, you know, that would be familiar for, with, to someone from London versus someone from New York like myself, that way you connect with the other person. And it shows empathy and compassion and understanding if you're putting yourself in the shoes of the, your other, the other person and saying, all right, what's going to resonate with that person? I should just explain for, for, for our listener that um, before before we press record, Todd and I were speaking about how we Brits get very defensive about um, uh, the sport of football being called anything else and anything else being called the sport of football. Um, and my resistance to the, the horrible six-letter word soccer, hence the, hence the reference <laughs> to it. But, but yeah, I mean, cross-cultural communication um, requires empathy. It requires understanding. And, and I can see how particularly with the use of metaphor, um, metaphors are very much rooted in popular culture. And if you're in conversation or presenting to people from a different culture, I can see how those metaphors wouldn't work. Yes, yeah. Um, okay, so well, let's go through your, your four your four areas. So the next one, I, I'm not going in, in the order in which they appear in the book and you listed them, but uh, I guess it's the, the order in which they, they jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. um, storytelling. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a speaker, I'm a trainer, and I know how important stories are. And I also know how, how much of a challenge many people see the crafting of stories to be it puts people off and i think one of the most important things that you say in the book and and i have heard it before it's something that i'm very aware of but i don't think is commonly thought of is the fact that a story can be a few words a story doesn't have to be a book it doesn't have to be a play a fairy tale whatever it might be it doesn't have to be an entire keynote talk it can be four lines so perhaps you can expand on that a little bit Sure. If you said, hey, I was coming home from work today, I tripped on the curb and, and, you know, ripped my pants and hurt my knee, that's a story, right? So I think what happens is we magnify and we elevate certain things and then we make them unreachable, untouchable and scary, right? I was actually doing a, a uh, one of the keynotes I do, one of the workshops I do is on the art and science of storytelling. And I was doing a, a session on storytelling, leadership storytelling for a group of 20 CEOs. And one of the CEOs said, I hate storytelling. I'm terrible at so storytelling. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he went on to tell this great story about you know why he's so bad at storytelling. Everyone looked at each other like that was an amazing story. So we put these limitations on ourselves. Um, you know, Children tell stories. Grandparents tell stories about, you know, when I was your age, you know, bosses tell stories. When I first started in this company, right, 
what is it about stories? Stories are human and humanizing. They're compelling. They capture and hold our attention. They're engaging. They are emotional. They're memorable. And they connect us, right? Again, speaking in terms of relationships and bonding, if I tell a story and you say, oh, I had a similar experience or I really empathize with that or I know what that's like, all of a sudden we're connected and we're bonded and we find commonalities. So you can talk to someone from a different culture, a different language, but it's the stories that bring us together because we're all living the story of humanity, right? Another thing is, you know, we're all the lead, every one of us is the lead character in our story, right? Every story has victims, villains, and heroes. Every story, going back to Aristotle, has a beginning, middle, and end. And like you said, it doesn't need to be a 500-page novel or a three-hour motion picture. A story could be, this is what happened to me, yes. How was work today? Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. That's a story, right? So I think if we, if we bring it down to that level, we're all born storytellers. And I think for me, uh, as a speaker and as someone who trains others on getting a message across in a way that will resonate, stories are your most powerful resource. Um, they create, a, you know, we talk about visual leadership. They create a visual image in people's minds. They can, they resonate with people. They they bring a theory to life. Yeah, when you're hearing a story, it's almost like watching a movie in your mind's eye, right? You're, you're recreating yeah. it in a way that's saying, you know, a, a manager training a new employee, you can give them do's and don'ts. Here are five things to do and five things not to do. But telling a story about, let me tell you about the worst mistake I ever made or the worst boss I ever had or the best team I've ever been on. People remember that and they pull the lessons out of it. I think that's what too, like we like to solve puzzles. That's just human nature. That's how the brain works. We like to fill in the gaps. And when you're listening to a story or reading a story, our brain is anticipating what's going to happen next. And that's engaging. And I think engagement is the magic of storytelling. We're, we're captivated. Because even, you know, even if you're reading a, watching a bad movie or reading a bad book, don't you, even if you fast forward or thumb through if you don't know how it ends, it leaves this forever gap or void in your life, right? So it's like, my wife and I are always doing that. We, we're watching a really bad movie. It's like, let's just fast forward and figure, find out how, we don't really care, but we need to know, right? So yeah. I think that's a big part of storytelling is that it connects us and uh, it puts a bow around things and creates some closure. And even if we don't love the story, we need to feel that sense of completion. I think that idea of, of capturing out and using our imagination is so important and you, you've reminded me of a conversation this week I, i've been watching an amazing uh, television series italian series called my brilliant friend and it's based on a series of books that are, are very popular and, and very successful and, and i fell in love i mean it, it, it is the most beautifully crafted beautifully shot beautifully written tv series uh, that i've seen or, or certainly up there and I plan to read the books at some point. And I mentioned this to my nieces and my sister. And I said, um, I mentioned the books and so on. And my niece said, oh, I need to read the books first. And I said, oh, well, I, I want to watch the series first because I find that if I've read a book and then I watch the television series, it destroys it for me. Mm -hmm. And my niece said, oh, no, she said, I need to paint the characters in my mind wow. first and get my vision of them because otherwise it will ruin the book for me if yeah. I've seen them on screen. That's a great example. Yeah. When you read a novel, you, you, again, you create that movie in your mind. And so often when we see the movie, if it doesn't match the picture, like if you watch The Godfather and then you read the book, the book is amazing, but you can't get Ma Marlon Brando out of your head. He is right. the Godfather, right? So it's like, that's a great example of that. And there's no right or wrong, right? There's no which is better, which is worse. It's personal preference. But I could see both points of view.
Yeah, you, you mentioned when when you listed the um, the four key areas in your book. Um, when you talked about storytelling, you said you get bonus points for humour. Uh, I do plan to to uh, devote an episode of this to the use of humour to engage people, but I would really be interested in, in your your top tips, your top take on on on, on the subject. Sure. The key thing about humor, it's not jokes. It's not like, hey, if, you know, two guys walked into a bar. That's not what we're talking about. A lot of times people think humor is about telling jokes. Humor is about seeing the funny side or the humanity in everyday life, right? So it's a funny thing happened to me on the way to the forum. It's, it's you know, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. So it's humor um, that's appropriate and relevant, not offensive. Like, you know, that's the dangerous thing about humor. What one person may find funny, may, someone else may not. There's that saying that humor is tragedy plus time. You know, when is it too soon to joke about certain things? So I think when you're using humor, you're it's incredibly powerful, but you're also taking a risk. So you really need to think about, um, sometimes I'm about to say something, but I think, or if, if one person in the audience could, might be offended by that, it's better to not say it rather than, so that's the thing about humor, but it's about noticing, it's about finding humor and humanity both start with the same, you know, beginning, right, of the word. So it's about finding the humanity in things and the funny side and the irony and but the thing about humor, when people laugh, they feel good. Or when people smile and when you feel good, you're more engaged. And when you're more engaged, you're taking the information. So humor is very powerful. Um, so when people write on the their course evaluations, Todd is the Seinfeld of leadership. You know, that's what that's to me like the highest <laughs> comment. So I once wrote in one of my workshops, he should have had a two drink minimum, minimum and a cover charge. I, I haven't <laughs> laughed so much in years. So again, it's not about some of the jokes. You know, I use some of my father's corny jokes in the book, right? Um, but I think, again, it humanizes people. When you use humor, it really, it, it connects you with people, it humanizes you, and it makes you feel good. When you feel good, you're engaged, and when you're engaged, you're learning and you're connecting. We hope that you are enjoying this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Don't forget, you can download your copy of Andy's book, Connected Leadership, from Amazon and other leading online bookstores. Just to, to tie off that, as, as, I, as I mentioned before, I will um, be planning an episode focusing on humour. And, and it, you know, it would be remiss of me not to mention that if you want to know more about the storytelling element, uh, episode five, I think it is, of this series uh, is an interview with the former executive vice president of Disney World Resorts in Orlando and one of the leading uh, UK exponents of storytelling on that topic. So please do check out um, that episode as well. So moving on um, to uh, drawing. Now, <laughs> my bad humour, this will tell you how bad my dad's humour was and how it influenced me. Mm. I always tell people I can't even draw curtains. So when it uh. comes to, to, to visual models um, uh, and visual illustrations, you know, to me, there's, there's a turn off straight away. And, and there are so many tools out there now to help us create great graphics. Canva is the one that everyone raves about these days. When I've tried it, I have struggled. I've really struggled. So for people like me, convince me, tell me how I can, as someone so un unartistic who can't draw a straight line, um, how can I best use um, visuals in the classic sense of the word, uh, visual images to get my message across and to engage with people? Sure. Well, I call, I call it ICD syndrome. I can't draw syndrome, right? Um, if you ask a group of first graders, or I don't know what that's called in, in the UK, a group of five-year-olds, right? How we many of you could it. draw? Yeah. 
How, how many of you could draw? They all raise their hand. But if you ask a group of business professionals, how many of you can draw? Very few do, right? So I always say, is it, have you lost the ability to draw or the confidence over the last 20, 30 years, right? So any of us could draw. In fact, when I'm teaching a workshop and I literally have people draw a straight line, then a box, then a circle, and then a triangle. It's like, if you could do that, then you could draw anything. You could draw an arrow. You could draw, right? So the power of, you know, when would you use this in real life? Right now, we're all, you know, many of us are at home because of the coronavirus. But when you're in person, can you grab a piece of paper and draw what we call a napkin sketch or something on the back of an envelope? Can you get up at a whiteboard or a flip, flip chart and just pick up a marker and sketch something out? That's the power of using visuals. And you don't need to be an artist. You don't need to be great at it. If you say, here's A and here's B or Z or Z, as you say over there, <laughs> um, right? So going from A to Z, right? And you draw an arrow, you just drew something that people say, all right, we're starting here. This is where we need to end up, right? So it's conceptual more than it is. It's not a test of our artistic abilities. So I don't know if you have the game Pictionary over there where you yes, have a word yes, and you have do, to draw. Yeah. So um, in fact, a book just came out. I forget the guy's name. The guy who originated Pictionary and came out with the game and everything else. He just wrote his life story and the story behind how he came up with it. But if you could play Pictionary or Charades, if you could use your button body language like if you say something is this long or this big or this high using your hands people that's that's a visually visual way of communicating your concept two quick stories one is when i i talk, talk about it in my tedx talk on the power of visual thinking when i was in china i had to do a project where none of us we didn't speak english the chinese people didn't i'm sorry we didn't speak chinese the chinese people didn't speak english to communicate, we just picked up pens and paper and started drawing things. If we needed a hammer, if we needed a screwdriver, we literally had to sketch it out and point to it, and then we knew what we were talking about. So that was a real-life example of using visuals to communicate across cultural lines. And in a similar situation where one of my coaching clients was wrestling with an east-west issue, and I drew an oval and, a, and drew a line the other way, north and south, and he said, well, if I split things up north and south instead of east and west, that solves my problem. That was like a 30-second napkin sketch, and yet it saved him millions and millions of dollars. And he didn't see it. Again, he didn't see the solution because he was too close to it, because mm. I knew nothing about it. He was so mired in the details and the what-ifs, and here's why it won't work. I knew nothing about it. And I thought it was such a stupid idea and so obvious that I didn't even, almost didn't suggest it. But when I did, he was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't even think of that, right? So those are two real-life examples from work where I used just drawing, just picking up a pen, doing a rudimentary sketch that solved a business problem. And, and actually, you've just reminded me of, of another example. And I was, I, I was desperately trying to think where I'd heard it and whether I'd read it in your book. But actually, I think it came from uh, the second episode of this series where I interviewed uh, Kerry Dorman and Vanessa Vallely on mentoring. And one of them said, pretty sure it's from that episode, one of them said that they came across someone who listen to a potential mentee's needs and then at the end drew a drew a diagram and said is this what you want to achieve mm. and the mentee immediately went yes that's exactly it and i've got the confidence to work with you now so i think that's a really nice practical example as well of how even i might be able to, to manage that that's great, def yeah. def definitely an icd um <laughs> sufferer here yeah. so, but so, again so, it's a learned skill i just want to say yeah. one of my mantras is how do you get people to quote unquote see what you're saying right so just like yeah. with your example with the mentor just like with the example with my coaching clients and my chinese colleagues um on that project that i was working on 
if you could see what the person's saying, if you could, people are not mind readers. I say that a couple of times throughout my book. So many managers say, well, that's not what I meant, or you should have known, or, you know, we are not mind readers. One of the stories that I tell all the time, and it's in my book, and my students love it, is the story about my boss years ago at a TV network in Los Angeles who threw a box of pens at my head because they weren't the ones she wanted. Yeah. She wanted yeah. the fine point, these were the medium point. So instead of just saying, here's what I wanted and holding up the pen or the box, it got lost in translation. We got the wrong things. And then her feedback and to me, instead of saying, oh, Todd, these are the wrong ones, her solution, uh, she couldn't think of any other way of giving me that feedback but throwing a box of pens at my head, right? So um, that's a story, by the way, um, <laughs> that you could visualize as if it was a horror movie uh, if you put yourself in my shoes of what that must have felt like. Um, but again, people are not mind readers. So if you could do, use imagery, holding up a picture, drawing a picture, um, a framework, then they could say, oh, I, now I see what you're saying and now we're on the same page. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, a speaker and a trainer and, of course, I use slides, I use a flip chart. I will, I will frequently, if I'm mentoring, quickly sketch out something, a, a graph or something to illustrate what I'm saying. So despite all of my reservations, I am doing this all the time. It's that uh, conscious focus on, on, on doing it, using it as a tool more, with more clarity. Yeah, you have a number uh, of models in your book, the structure of a yes. network, which is kind of like a, a, a target, right? Where you go yeah. from seven, one down to the seven to hit the center. You have the, I call it in my book, I call it the pizza slice approach because I kind of make it yeah. into, but it's basically an org chart, right? Done yeah. in the form of a pyramid. And you have, so in your book, even though you may say, oh, I don't use the influence map, right? We have you know, the Harvey Coleman pie model, right? Those, that's the power of visual. It's like, I remember the concept because I saw the picture that represented the concept, right? So the text may have been, all right, you, you, hit, you, you remember some, you don't remember others, but that vision, that the picture is forever embedded in my mind. So if I needed to recreate it or explain it to someone now, that's the power of an image. So I talk about three things that we haven't mentioned yet. Why visuals? I use three words, attention, comprehension, and retention, right? Mm -hmm. When you show someone a picture or use visual language, it captures their attention and gets them to focus. Now they're thinking about it, they're focused on it. Comprehension, it helps understanding. Oh, there's seven light levels to this. Oh, now I visual this, visualize this target and how you get from the outer rim of one down to the center at seven, right? I can picture that in my mind's eye. And then retention is memory and recall. Once you see that visual image, it's embedded in your head uh, in a way that uh, it's called the uh, dual coding dual coding theory when you use both sides of the brain using text and pictures combined that 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 concept will both be more understandable and will be more memorable so those are just a few a little bit of the, the science behind why visuals whether pictures or visual language is so impactful uh, and and really useful uh, so so finally models which your book is brimming with uh, as great examples so how can we use models to to communicate and engage as leaders yeah i did my first tedx talk last year called the power of visual thinking i was booked to do my second tedx talk two months ago but it was canceled because of the pandemic and rescheduled for next year mm. that one is going to be called the magic of mental models so it's all about you know how we always say we, always say we have to think outside the box mine is called thinking inside the box right so if you create a model or a framework it could be a circle or a, or a four box matrix or a pyramid or it doesn't matter what the shape is the shape helps you to conceptualize the concept but if you could take the complexity and messiness of life put it inside some kind of framework so you can see it more clearly you'll see solutions that you didn't envision before it just helps you wrap your mind again 
metaphor, wrap your mind around the issue or challenge so you can see possible solutions. So when you put something in a model or a framework, if you think about a company's organizational chart, that's a mental, that's a framework, right? You're taking the positions and the titles, putting them in a visual structure so you can see reporting relationships, seniority, contacts, you know, you could do something in the form of a mind map as you do with your influencing map, right? By putting something in a model or a framework, you see possibilities and you gain more clarity and understanding so that you can make better decisions. Excellent. Okay. So we've got our four areas. We've got our metaphor, our storytelling, our drawing, our models. Um, you've, re- you've mentioned already that you majored in English literature, or I think I, I mentioned that. Uh, and you've, you've quoted Hamlet already. You referenced uh, Shakespeare throughout the book. Uh, my sister is a Shakespeare scholar, mm. so she would love that. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, but one of the things that struck me um, was how you said uh, great leaders can get as much inspiration from fiction as they can from business books. Can you e- elaborate on that for us, please? Sure. I mean, ideas come from anywhere. Uh, le- leadership lessons are hiding in plain sight all around us, from the newspapers to what's going on in the world. But there's movies, television shows. You mentioned that show, My Brilliant Friend, right? So leadership lessons are all around us if we notice them, from the sports world, from arts and, you know. So when we're reading fiction, poetry, plays, um, short stories, it doesn't really matter. It's about character. It's about overcoming challenges and obstacles. It's about triumph and victory, right? Um, So when reading literature, I think we become more empathetic. We experience the world through the lens of others, different cultures, different time periods, right? It's almost like time travel, right? You envision what it's like to live in Shakespearean times or even Shakespeare's writing about, say in Julius Caesar, for example, you know, 44 BC in the, the era of Julius Caesar, right? So literature and the arts and humanities transport us to another time and place so that we can experience the world from other perspectives, right? And see things from other points of view. And I think that helps us to think more um, with more diversity and to see things from multiple perspectives and realize our way in this time in this place is not the only way to look at the world. I think that makes us more, um, again, more innovative and and more open to possibilities. And it connects us with other people because we realize that no one way or no one culture is the one and only right way. So I think it just expands our mind. I think that's that's what it does. And of course, the, the, the hero's journey on which yeah. so much literature is founded, it, it resonates with us because it reflects our real life. You know, the hero has an objective, challenges are thrown in the way, and ultimately, hopefully, in real life, yeah. they come through. So, so I guess, you know, if you take Julius Caesar, um, you can look at the journey on a whole and you can say, well, what you know, what went well, what didn't. I, I'm reading Oliver Stone's uh, new biography, autobiography at the moment, and he was saying how when he was young, his father used to take him to the movies and they would watch all the great films and, and his father would say to him, um, what did you think? And, and the young Oliver Stone would go, yeah, it was good or it was okay. And his father would then say, but why did this happen? And when that happened, what did that mean? And he, they would dissect the whole story and, and, and what, you know, what actions led to what consequences. And I guess it's that mindset that helps you take ideas and inspiration 
um, f- from fiction and, and apply it to real life scenarios. Yeah, villains, victims, heroes. You know, in some in some parts of our life, we're the hero or the we're the protagonist. Others were just a supporting character, and others were not noticed. Right. So there's all kinds of ways of framing our lives as stories. And you know, Julius Caesar again. It's like there's so many parallels to politics today. Right. So that's oh, yes. from so long ago. You know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. That's one of the all-time great speeches of all time. How he led this mob to his way of thinking. You know, Brutus was an honorable man and all of a sudden, you know, two minutes later, the whole crowd is, you know, influenced. So we haven't even used the word influence yet. That's a big part of, you know, it, both of what, there's a lot of overlaps between your book and my book. We Definitely. approach it from different angles, almost like a Venn diagram, but we, we meet at the center. Um, so impact and influence, right? We always think about, you know, when we do something, who do our, our words and actions have an impact on other people, right? Who are those people? Same thing, people have an impact on us. Similarly, to get done, we need to influence other people, right? How do we gain their buy-in? How do we win them to our way of thinking, right? How do we build relationships? How do we, right? So, and who, who needs to influence us to get things done? So there's all these interdependencies. So if you picture your pyramid or your mind map of your relationships, um, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw from literature and say that this, my situation is kind of like this from this book or this movie or this poem. What can I learn from that and take from that to be more effective? So I think that's what it is. I think it's just learning from life. I mean, you can go to an art museum and see a painting and say, well, that painting reminds me of a situation that I'm currently facing, right? So if we look for those things and we're more aware of the power of visuals in the world around us, there are lessons all around us that we could draw from to help us be more successful and more effective. And, and you say that, that, you know, you could draw a Venn diagram between our two books and uh, there's a lot of overlap. And I think that's one of the things that we picked up when we were first introduced uh, and had our initial conversation, which is why, you know, we bought each other's books and, oh. and I invited you onto this, this podcast. Um, one of the key ways that jumped out at me from uh, visual leadership is one of the models you share, which is the three V's. Um, and, you know, you talk about visibility, voice and value. And I think those go to the heart of, of strong professional relationships. So um, perhaps you can share, you know, what you mean by uh, the three V's. Sure. My three V's, visibility, voice and value. I ask people the question, are you seen and how, how, and how are you seen by others, right? How are you perceived? Are you heard and how are you heard, right? And also, are you perceived as someone who's making a significant contribution. So I asked that of my students in my class at NYU in Columbia, you know, if I don't see you and I don't hear you and you're not making a contribution, then what are you adding to the conversation, right? So what are you adding to our class? What are you adding back at work, right? Um, this comes up a lot in, now we're all living on Zoom, right? If you have your mic off, your camera off, and you haven't spoken or added to the chat, then you just basically showed up but you didn't contribute anything. You didn't add any value. So um, who do people want to connect with and build relationships with? People that they see here and, and see some value in, right? When we connected on the gate group, thanks to Mike Roderick and the gate group, um, but that's how we originally met, right? I said, who is this guy? I looked up your LinkedIn profile. Real life example of that. If someone sent you a LinkedIn invite, but there was no picture there and you can see them and they didn't post anything, so they didn't say anything, you say, all right, what's the value of connecting with this person, right? But if someone is, you, know, you see them, you hear them and you see that, hey, this person has a lot to contribute, sure, I'll connect with this person. So that ties into your whole, you know, connected leadership concept of who do you want to build relationships with, you know? Who do you know and who wants to know you are some of the questions. Uh, one of the models that actually popped into my head as I was thinking about this from your book was the Coleman uh, Pie model. 
um, performance, image, and exposure, right? There's some overlap there between yeah. pie and vis visibility, voice, and value. So I think those are the key things. It's like, if you're not seen and heard and, and being recognized for making a contribution, then you're not maximizing your value in terms of why people want to connect with you. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate here because sure. I agree thoroughly with you. <laughs> but I know that a lot of people that listen to this would classify themselves uh, as more introvert than not. And they might be sitting there and saying, this is an extrovert's charter. That's easy for you to say, you're clearly very outgoing, you're very clearly very confident. So what would you say to them? Someone who gets this, understands it, but sits in that meeting and doesn't have confidence in their voice, is struggling to find that voice, uh, gets talked over. All right, well, I want to reveal something just between you and let's just keep it between us and not tell the rest of the world. I am an extreme introvert. I use three B words. I am a behind the scenes kind of guy. I am the back of the room kind of guy. And I am a bookworm. So those are my three Bs. So the fact that I am out here doing podcasts, TEDx talks and speaking at universities and doing keynotes is so beyond what I ever would have guessed for myself 15 years ago, 20 years ago, because it is not me. I have pushed myself so far out of my comfort zone, I don't even recognize you know, the person I used to be. So I am an extreme introvert. Um, even though I talk loud and talk fast, that's just because I'm from New York. So um, <laughs> just gonna, I'm going to just you know, put that to the side right now. I've gained confidence over the years. That's what I would say. If you speak once, if you, when you speak, you get better at it. When you get better at it, you get more confident. When you get more confident, you take more risks and the, you get the ball turning. So I have a number of stories in my book where I talk about that. My diving board analogy of yeah. I once went to a, a friend's family's pool, swimming pool club um, when I was a kid. And, and uh, we, I went up to the high diving board and I went to the edge and I was going to jump off because I saw all the other kids do, doing it. I was around 10 years old at the time and I was terrified. So I went to turn back and all the other kids were already up the ladder saying, will you jump already? You're holding up the line. And I just jumped. And what did I do the rest of the day? I kept going up and jumping off, right? But had I not been forced or pushed, I wouldn't have done it. And I have a similar story. The very first time I ever spoke publicly, I was behind the scenes for a training company and I showed up at a remote location and the trainer didn't show up. And we were doing a, a workshop for CEOs and with no trainer, we either had to cancel it or I had to do it. And I ended up having to facilitate a full day, day one of a three-day leadership workshop um, because I was the only one there to do it. And you know what I realized? I didn't hate it and I wasn't that bad at it. And I started taking some public speaking courses and um, I, over the years with practice, I got better at it. So that's what I would say. That's the long answer to if I could do it. I, was, I used to be so too terrified to even speak on the phone. That's how introverted and timid and shy I was. But over the years, I'm still a wallflower when I go to a networking event. Um, I actually am more comfortable on Zoom than I am in real life. So I may never go back to real life. I may live the rest of my life on Zoom. Um, but I think that's what I would say. It's like any of us with a little nudge, a little practice um, can step out of our shell and be seen, heard, and, and add value uh, more often. Because if people don't know what we have to contribute, then we're missing an opportunity to um, make a difference in people's lives. So some baby steps. We're not expecting people who, yeah. who, who, who sat silent in meetings for years to suddenly take the, the chair next time they turn up, but set yourself a target of making one key point and think it through in advance and know what you want to, what you're going to say and which of these tools you can use to get your message across in a more effective way. That's exactly what I say to my students. Again, many of them are international students. I'll say, as we're talking, just jot down a note of what you want to say. So that's the first thing. Just make a mental note. It may set a goal. My classes are three hours. Set a goal of speaking once per hour, right? It doesn't even have to be the answer, anything brilliant. Just ask a question. 
here's a question you could ask. Can you repeat that? Right? You just asked the question. You just said something, right? So um, once you speak once, it opens up the floodgates. If you don't, the difference between zero and one is larger than the difference between one and 100. If you never speak, then you may never open up your mouth. So just speak once. That's what I do in my NYU class. I have my students stand up. They ha all have to speak within the first five minutes. And then I say to them, you all just spoke more than I spoke in all my years of high school, college, and graduate school, because I never did. I was always too terrified to do that. And it kind of, once I reveal that to them, but you need to create a, as a leader, a culture and a climate of psychological safety where people feel they are not gonna be humiliated or criticized and where they're willing to be vulnerable. I think that's the important thing. But again, once you do, once you give permission, people permission and a little nudge, um, they're gonna do it. I think you make a great point. It's not going from never speaking to taking a TEDx stage, it is baby steps. Todd, thank you very much. I, time has flown by. I found it really enjoyable. I'm sure people listening have as well. Um, Todd's book is Visual Leadership. I really recommend it. Well, I, well, I did. I gave it five stars on, on Amazon. <laughs> thank you. Um, and it's been great to chat again. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Fanny. I definitely enjoyed my conversation with Todd. So much energy, so much passion for what he does. The enthusiasm just seeped through. And not just the energy and, and, and passion, but some really great knowledge to share as well. The book is similar. Uh, it's a really interesting book. It's a very different style of book. It's almost like a management textbook in the sense that it covers so many areas to do with management and leadership and, and business in general, uh, which Todd uses as ways to illustrate his points about visual communication and visual leadership. So for example, I, I referenced in our conversation um, his his focus on models. So there are so many different models there for leadership to illustrate how models can be used. I hope you enjoyed that visit to our archives and we'll see you again next week on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.